Hi folks, a little bit of housekeeping before we start the podcast. This is a conversation I recorded uh, about 10 days ago with UCD's Aidan Regan and I hope you really enjoy it. But before you do, maybe check out patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack where you will find our latest podcast including the conversation we had yesterday with Tomas Ryan on long COVID, the implications for society uh, long term and, and why people don't seem to care enough at the moment you know uh, it's it's a, it's a worrying trend also had a brilliant chat with uh, Irish journalist uh, Madrid based Irish journalist Owen Gilmartin on the massacre in Melilla uh, it was look it, it, it goes without saying if you've seen those images uh, of what happened at the Spanish Moroccan border uh, you know Fortress Europe has a lot to answer for and Owen breaks down in a brilliant way you're also missing our conversation with his um, UCD historian uh, Mary McAuliffe which was another uh, barnstorming look at how women and children continue to be penalised through the lens now of Roe v. Wade being repealed and there's a lot more up there including podcasts coming this week with, we're scheduled to speak to Ono Brin, I've uh, just texted the Minister for Housing to see if he wants to join us but hey look, I won't hold my breath uh, there's also conversations coming in on a fascinating story about a wonderful trans, trans person who set up a, 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 a clinic to help trans people when it wasn't legal to do so. Uh, looking forward to having that conversation as well. All of those are available as quickly as we can turn them around on patreon.com forward slash tortoiseshack. It's the price of a fancy cup of coffee or a cheap pint nowadays. Helps us keep going. Really appreciate it. Uh, and if you can't do that, please spread the word. Let people know. Let them know where to find us uh, and recommend us. Thanks for listening. Thanks for the support. Enjoy the podcast. Hello and welcome to the Echo Chamber podcast. My name is Tony Groves and I'm again. You listen, if you have a podcast before 12 o'clock, the simple rule is Martin can't get out of bed. It's as easy as that. So unfortunately, folks, uh, it's you're stuck with me yet again. Um, just just we'll, we'll point people in the direction of a couple of new pods that we've put in together. Uh, the first kind of taster of Shrapnel podcast hosted by Garrett Mulvena and Sam McElwain is up on the Patreon feed now, and it's gotten a lot of fantastic reviews. Um, if, you'd, if you told me four or five years ago, I'd be producing a, uh, a podcast led by um, a member of uh, a, a lad from the Loyalist Unionist community. I'd have thought you were mad. But I have to tell you, I'm really great, grateful for the lads for trusting us with this. And I would recommend giving it a listen. We will get it out in general release uh, over, the, over the coming weeks. But, you know, it's up there for patrons now. Anyway, enough plugging. Uh, I am delighted to be rejoined on the podcast by Associate Professor in UC, UCD Dublin, uh, Aidan Regan. Aidan, how are you keeping? Good, thanks. Thanks for the invitation to come and chat again. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, we we are all, we 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 have bumped into another outside of podcast world, but nonetheless, uh, it's it's always nice to put these things down and uh, and get it out to the world. There has been, how do I put this, competing narratives at the moment about about what's happening in the in the economy, and Ireland has what I would say is almost a dual economy, and we've seen this for years. You know where where the the headline figure looks great, but the duck under the water, its feet are pedaling like shite just to keep up. And do you want to give me your sense from uh, the political economy standpoint, where we are and what that actually means in the wider world outside of the, those big numbers? Sure, sure. I mean, the first thing I would say uh, is that, you know, there's a lot of uncertainty. And I always find it interesting when I read certain kind of financial reports and financial commentators how certain they seem to be about what's going to happen next. 
And I always look at that with a big eye of caution because the reality is we live in a very indeterminate world, you know? You know, we've had so many different kind of events and shocks and and things going on, and it's very hard to kind of identify what's the cause of something. So I'm very reluctant to sort of say something is causing something, and that's just a kind of social scientific point of view, just clearly a configuration of lots of different things coming together to shape, uh, you know, economic outcomes. And it varies a lot by country, by sector, by household. So, you know, I can certainly give a kind of macro picture of what I think is going on. And I think your use of the term narrative is really important because from my perspective, beliefs, narratives, feelings, these are the things that ultimately shape markets, right? Um, and the narrative that's generated will have a big impact on policy makers but like you know i think it is important to note that we've had like and again it's funny how we don't even sort of talk about it really where we had two years of shutting down the economy right that's kind of unprecedented where governments stepped in proactively kind of shut down large sectors of the economy and used their balance sheet to directly finance and become the paymaster of last resort for various businesses and workers that's that's unprecedented right that's in most of the advanced kind of economies of the world, the advanced capitalist democracy of the world. So you do that for two years, you can be pretty sure that there's going to be uh, an effect, <laughs> right? And we don't really know what- There's going to be There's going to be a build, there's going to be a build that comes due at some point. Exactly. There's going to be pent up demand and so on. So then like you open things up again, and I think it did kind of surprise a lot of people just how quick most economies rebounded. And that's the same for Italy, for Spain, for Ireland, for the USA. Uh, we could talk about the UK in a moment because the UK obviously has the whole issue of Brexit and exiting from the single market thrown in on top of all these different things. So that clearly kind of created a lot of, you know, lots of pent up savings, people spending money and so on. And then on top of that, obviously, you know, we had the war in Ukraine (laughs) and you had Russia invading Ukraine uh, and all the, and I would be fairly confident and sure that Putin realized what he was doing much, much further back in time when he began to kind of slightly manipulate the price of gas and oil, you know, earlier on a good few months before he invaded, which kind of sent gas prices right up in places like Germany and so on. So something was clearly happening in energy markets. And again, we, as social scientists, we can look back in time and explain and put together what happened but anybody who tries to predict what's going to happen in my view is 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 playing a fool's game it's it's probability and it's betting and some people have a better sense of what the probability is and bet better than others but in reality we just don't know so i think what's really going on is the inflation that we see is a combination of different factors it's a combination of pent-up demand it's a combination of corporate profiteering it's a combination of rising energy prices and you put all that together, you know, something bakes into the economy and it becomes very hard to control, becomes very hard to predict. But I think for the most part, at least in the eurozone, if you want to look at it that way, it's mostly related to, uh, to the rapid rise in energy prices. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then the spill on effect, of course, as you know, Tony, into food prices and imported food prices and transport costs. And then, every no, understandably, business start raising up prices. Then they realize, oh, hold on a second, people are willing to pay these prices. Hey, we'll add a little markup here too, you know. Oh, there's actually profit to be made out of this, you know. Mm-hmm. And you know, this all kicks in together and all of a sudden we have this inflationary dynamic. Uh, and that's the thing, like the macro kind of economic story of the day. But there's lots of other macroeconomic stories going on in the past few years. So I think that's the issue with inflation. And of course, as you know, we know inflation affects people in very different ways. You know, different households feel it in very different different ways. It increases cost of living. But I would say this, Tony, because you mentioned it. So the inflation thing is real. It's going up. And we can talk about whether or not central banks can actually do anything about it. 
And I think we need to have a frank and honest conversation about whether or not using the interest rate mechanism is actually going to make much difference really to the real source of the inflation dynamic. Because if it doesn't, you're engineering a recession, you're kickstarting a big stagflation. And guess who's going to pick up the bill for that, right? It's not the top 20% of the income distribution. It definitely ain't those who are making profit from the crisis. But Ireland, Dublin has had a cost of living crisis for a long time. Yeah. <laughs> right? As you know, it's been, I wrote a piece uh, a good few months back, maybe even longer, maybe a year back further about how Dublin had the highest cost of living uh, of all cities in the European Union, where I pointed out, put together childcare, housing costs, and everything else using different measures. And we don't have, it's worth noting, an official cost of living index, right? Inflation is not cost of living. And we can talk about that because cost of living depends very much on what your purchasing power is. And that varies a lot by household and the income you receive. But a large part of the average earner, the median earner in Dublin, still faces the highest cost of living in the European Union. And that's mostly because of really high expensive housing we, we know we know um nessa horgan in the greens is working on that well-being index that will 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 cater to some of those issues that you've just well and they are serious gaps in how we report because we have this awful habit of saying the headline number looks great in ireland therefore you yeah. know uh the median everybody must be grand yeah. uh and and you know and and we, we know that that's not true, but... And Ireland, of course, is a special case here, and it's a related mm. to your initial question as well, because of the statistical footprint of large multinational corporations, whereby you do have two economies. That's pretty much well established and accepted at this stage. GDP means nothing. Modified gross national income means something, but it's actual consumption that really makes a difference. And when you look at that, well, Ireland really looks quite... Quite, there's a big divergence and it depends very much on who you work for. And if you work for a large multinational, you're doing okay. But we know them. not only do large multinationals in Ireland leave a statistical footprint on Ireland, as Philip Lane pointed out a couple of years ago when looking at the trade balance of the Eurozone, the, 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 the tax avoidance strategies of large multinationals actually distort the entire Eurozone yeah. accounts. Say that again, just for listeners, because you got to think this tiny rock on the edge of Europe can distort the entire GDP figures for the for the Eurozone. Yeah, and you have to strip out Ireland to a certain extent on particular quarters. And as we know, that's mainly because of the intellectual property onshoring of these yeah. companies where they shift large amounts of intangible assets. It's so valuable according to market that it, it really distorts the trade accounts of the uh, of the euro. Yeah, it's I spoke, I spoke to someone in Latin America uh, last week, um, not on the podcast, but we, we were discussing this and he had an estimate, uh, an economist had an estimate that some of the multinational companies operating um, in, in his jurisdiction shift as much as 63% of their profits through Dublin. Yeah, no, that doesn't that surprise me. I mean, the, the, the conservative estimate would probably put it around 50%. So maybe mm. 63 is probably closer to the truth. I just think, I mean, when you think about that, like that's 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 less doctors and nurses in parts of Latin America as well. That's what that, yeah. you know what I mean? So we have to be honest about that. Can I can I though want to go on to the the real um other boat that we seem to have missed because the cost of borrowing. Yes, we spent we spent a few years saying, please borrow, please borrow, please, you know, invest, please invest, borrow and invest when, you know, there was negative interest rates, there was zero interest rates, there was, you know, it's, it's less than, I think it's less than 18 months ago, the ESRI said, uh, borrow up to 7 billion now at about 0.6 of a percent. And now we're sitting somewhere around 2.2 to 2.6 percent. Our cost of borrowing has trebled already. Exactly. I don't want to play Monday morning quarterback, as the Americans say, but my God, um, this idea that we were prudent through these things, it actually, it's going to, those chickens are going to come home to roost very quickly. 
Absolutely. It was an enormous lost opportunity the past 10 years. We had an opportunity to borrow, as you say, negative real interest rates and use the state and do a bit of financial innovation, uh, get very professional, good people in to manage it on behalf of the state. There's lots of really creative things you could have done, ultimately aimed at generating wealth for for society and generating uh, wealth for, for Irish citizens and residents. And it was such a, from my perspective, we talked about it before, it was such a no brainer. You know, we were we were, we were a minority, and the gen- general narrative was, and still is, the stock of debt is so high. Ireland has a stock of debt of two hundred billion. It's one of the highest in the OECD, etc. And therefore, why would you add to that? Whereas I think most people who are following this uh, closely would say, well, actually, what really matters here is the cost of servicing that debt. You know, we're talking about a government, the state, uh, who issues bonds, and those bonds can be used to make long-term investments. You're not, this is not a household. You're thinking about it the wrong way. Uh, and you're in a position to create the infrastructure of the future, which in turn will generate the growth that will allow your economy to become more productive and in turn allow you to service the long-term debt that your debt or bonds that you have issued over time. So from macroeconomic perspective in a situation like that for me it was a no-brainer and it was an enormous missed opportunity not to do it and i don't accept the narrative at all that the prudent thing to do was not to do it the sri i think you said seven billion they had suggested and i would have said more <clears throat> you know i would have and, said- and, and let's be clear the esri are are not uh, radicals these yeah. are these are these are not the people who are listening to tony groves uh, say we need to do this now they are being sensible in their in their in their details and that's not to say that i i i'm that radical but you get my point they're 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 definitely not joining paul murphy on the barricades oh no certainly not but even still i mean it is worth noting so i mean there's a, there is a risk i think and we might move on to talk about this shortly that you know so borrowing has gone up and you know there's a risk now that the usual voices will be out saying oh therefore look game over can't finance this can't invest in that go cost so borrowing is too high, but it is worth remembering when you look at the, the, the actual Ireland's debt servicing costs are the lowest I think it's ever been for, for at least for the last 20, 30 years. I could be mistaken on that, but it's particularly low. Um, the interest rate, historically speaking, is still quite low. The interest rate is still below 2006 levels, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yeah. When interest rates were so the state can still, Irish state in particular, can issue long term bonds at a relatively low interest rate because most estimates, and again, let's Back to my initial point about we don't want to be doing predictabilities and and so on. But the probability of the Irish economy growing is quite strong uh, because it has a particular growth model. And notwithstanding the problems of that growth model about taxation and multinationals, I think most people who do these calculations look at the Irish economy and say, yes, it's highly unequal. Yes, it's problematic from a global perspective, but ultimately they have an engine of growth and that engine is purring. So, you know, and, and therefore the cost of servicing an interest rate at 2.2% and over the long term should not be a problem, I don't think. So I would still be very much in favour. I haven't changed my position that the government still ought to effectively issue longer term bonds to do those types of investments, build public housing and build the public infrastructure to tackle the climate uh, crisis. So I, I, for me, nothing has changed that much on that, on that front, you know? No, the, the, the availability is still there. Like where our costs are still only one third of what Italy's are, I think, at the moment in, in the bond market. And it's because we can carry so much debt based on our GDP. We absolutely can. And effectively, as you say, um, you know, we can talk about the ethics of that and, yeah, and yeah. somewhere else. But but nonetheless, that's the, these are the these are the realities facing us. But what is up? But what's worrying is is the reticence to do that because you what you referred to was hardly um, 
we know that we're seeking foreign capital to do some of these projects, including some of the renewables that we're looking at, you know, because the state have said that they, you know, they only want to be sort of 20% of the pie. They want yeah. you and I to pay for, for you know, a good chunk of it by paying for retrofit our houses. And we want private capital to do the rest. Private capital is asking for a 4% yield. Mm-hmm. So if we were borrowing at 2.2 and we're making a 4% yield on, on with some sort of state uh, sovereign wealth fund, we'd all be better off. Yeah. You know, like we'd all own the infrastructure and be better off. But, you know, yeah. and it's, we're, it's, what, it's what Eric Lonergan, whom I know you've done yeah. a few times, just called simple math. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, of course, it's it's going to be more complicated than that when you try to build it out. But my point is the, that, that 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 is they, these are the sums. And even if we didn't make the four percent yield, we'd still own the bloody assets, Aiden. At this, in many of the other ways, we don't even own the assets. Um, look, I think I, like, just just on it, just some funny, but I do think this is important. And you know, I find myself as well when I'm teaching political economy to my students as well, the language you use is really important. And I think, to, I think a large reason why, understandably, not just voters, but also large parts of the media and obviously for the, the, the political institutions of the state are highly reluctant to kind of be thinking in terms of investment and borrowing, et cetera, because we got burned in 2008. And I understand all of that. But I think the language used around it, like, so, you know, there is a key and obvious difference between borrowing to consume existing resources and borrowing, as you just said a month ago, to create wealth into the future. Uh, so I think the narrative really matters here and the language we use really matters. And that's how I think about it. And that's the language I use in my mind. So it's so seeped into my worldview of this that it that it is a, such a no-brainer that the state would leverage its position on behalf of citizens to create the wealth of the future, to ultimately improve and increase the living standards of everybody. And they have the ability to do that um because if you're going to rely on you know the private market to do it it might get somewhere but it's not really long-term strategic thinking on behalf of uh, of citizens no and it's also important to point out that uh the minister for finance i believe misspoke when he said unlikely that ireland could get more money to to invest in public housing when we know that the ecb and the the powers that be have have paused the fiscal yeah. rules i mean they're they're no longer at play so so we could actually avail of 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 funds should we should we want them something um very close to your kind of um your heart now i know you're you're quite outspoken on the need for more to be done in terms of climate action we saw the the epa report saying that even if we do these things that we're supposed to be doing we won't make 51%. We'll be closer to 27%. We're not getting anywhere near it done. Um, just in, in terms of the economic imperative now, we are facing this dual crisis of, as you said, trying to heat our homes, trying to put, trying to put fuel in cars, and then the, the, the um, food sustainability, food insecurity. The environmental, the, the threat to see less being done i mean ireland is literally buying these giant engines now to 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 provide us with emergency backup because we can't burn enough coal and money points to to make up the energy deficit surely the imperative there should be saying well actually it's not a threat to the environment we should be doing more now and ramping that up now is is that not the economic argument that that needs to be made more often and more vociferously yeah, absolutely. <clears throat> I think it's also related to what we mentioned a moment ago <clears throat> in terms of framing language, you know, generating a narrative to create the political will to do what is ultimately economically required and necessary. And, you know, I think, you know, I think, you know, on the energy system, Ireland actually is in a rather unique position. And again, it's not it's not leveraging its its, its unique position because we are an island in the middle of the bloody Atlantic Ocean, practically, right? We have the wind power uh, and the technology is there to bring it up to scale. 
Uh, the finance is available if the state wanted to pursue it. So why is it not happening? And I think at this point, you know, one has to get down into the weeds and recognize that there's problems with planning, there's problems with regulation, there's problems with this coordination. And it's fairly obvious at this point that the public sector, the state doesn't seem to have the strategic capacity, actually, the management technical capacity to actually lead on this and bring the different stakeholders together. And of course, we know it's difficult to bring people on board. You know, nobody wants a wind farm in their back garden. Nobody wants a cycle lane in their, in their front garden, all the rest. It's really difficult to do things when you get down to implementation. So, but but the technical and fine, the technical capacity or the technical know-how and the financial capacity is there. So why are we not doing it? Very open question. I just hope that the Department of Finance and the senior political leaders of this country and senior civil servants are having a really robust conversation about it. Because, you know, I don't see how we could not move into a position uh, of ultimately creating or creating the capacity for renewables to power ultimately the entire energy system, which in turn would allow us to move towards the type of technical changes and political changes that are needed in, in housing, in transport uh, and industry for in, in effect. So that to me is the big picture question. The finance is there, the know-how is there. Why the hell are we not doing and, it? And, and I don't and, have an answer to that question. And the infrastructure, as you like, people say, well, we got to talk nuclear. And then someone says, well, nuclear can take 10 to 20 years. We know that an offshore wind farm can take 24 months to 36. Yeah. I mean, this is the this is the idea. And we have that, you know, we have those resources, as you say, off our coast. Um, um and okay, they create disruption when they're being built, you know, for for um marine life, but they actually tend to actually then recover, bounce back quicker and become havens for, for many cetaceans and, and the like. So there are arguments for you know, for if it's done correctly, because let's all shock horror we won't be the first to have done it other places have done it successfully and it worked you know um i the, can i ask a question i don't think I, I was i was um i don't think i mentioned it when we said we'd have this conversation but there's a lot of talk now about uh wage demands and wage restructure and you see you know nick lynch has become a hero in the uk uh by suffering no no uh no fools shall i put it bluntly um and but we we only have to look around our own situation whereby there's you know the, this talk of moving towards a living wage over a five to six year period should the economy um bear it the economy could bear it now i put it to you aiden right now on the basis of our last budget we left billions on the table because we still we we didn't overspend our co our COVID allowance and we had access to more funds, particularly based on our debt to GDP. What's yeah. what Ireland can access? Yeah, yeah, no, I think yes, I agree. Short answer, but I think the bigger question here, of course, is it's in and it's back to your kind of brings us back to the initial conversation as well. So you have this, you have an inflationary dynamic, and the causes of that inflation are complex but ultimately it's about i think in the eurozone increased energy costs in particular associated with the war in ukraine on top of a bit of corporate profiteering and then all the supply chain bottlenecks that have built up post-covid in and then you have increased demand but ultimately it's not a demand side push it's not wages pushing up inflation which is typically what where, what, where inflation comes from and the central bank's tools, monetary policy for the past 50 years effectively have been constructed on the assumption that inflation is a wage demand push. So what you do is you increase interest rates. That basically encourages people to save, to stop kind of uh, spending. And in turn, it kind of balances the power in favor of business. You can effectively tell workers no wage increase and you engineer a bit of recession. You create some unemployment and worker demands for wage 
increases go, go, go down. Talk about class politics. It's baked into contemporary monetary policy, but nobody uses the language of political economy. It's all baked, use highly technical language, but ultimately it is class politics, right? And can I just, can I can just, I'll, I'll let you finish that point, but I think it's really interesting that you said that because I saw a statement from the Fed saying that uh, the only way to kind of, because they said at first inflation was transitory. Now they're saying it's 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 locked yeah. in. And they, the, one of the funny things that they did say and wasn't really picked up on much was they need to make sure that um, unemployment is, you know, rooted somewhere around 6% for, they said somewhere between 24 and 36 months to fight this inflation recycle. Unemployment in the US is, is almost less than 4%. They're almost saying we have to create more unemployment Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I'm almost sure Larry Summers said that explicitly yesterday as well. Imagine Uh, saying that out loud. Like, we we need to create unemployment to... uh... Yeah, and of course, the people who would be suggesting that are not the people who they imagine will be become unemployed. Obviously, <laughs> it's the it's, it's the little people that will become unemployed. So yeah, I mean, it, it is that's that's what's going on. But again, but on the, on the technical side of things, I would doubt, and I have my doubts that increasing interest rates in this environment is actually going to create the effect that it's at it once. And if it doesn't bring down inflation, or for example, again, cause and effect here, you might increase interest rates, you might create a mini recession, you might increase unemployment, and you might kind of mitigate against worker demands for wage increases. And in a couple of years, inflation might kind of drop off, but there's no guarantee that the co- increased interest rate was the cause of that. It might actually be the previous assumption of, of this is transient, and actually supply side factors are just kind of working themselves out, et cetera, and some sort of, I hate the term, equilibrium emerges, but, but that, that's, that's, that's there. From my perspective, workers are perfectly right to be demanding a wage increase and to be bargaining for wage increases to at least match or exceed productivity increases in the economy. That's that's a perfectly rational response to the current situation. And I think depending on the country, depending on the sector, there's a large part of Irish society that merit wage increases. I don't necessarily think that those in the top decile, top 10% of the income distribution should get a wage increase, you know, maybe more taxes there to mitigate a bit of inflation dynamic. I don't think they, they, those who are in that bracket would support that, you know, but I have absolutely no, I, I, I think it's a good thing that the bottom 50, 60% of the income distribution would demanding wage increases. Um, and I also think that having a bit of a wage increase, and if it does have a bit of a wage inflation dynamic for a few years, is not necessarily a bad thing. Just on the, the, the macro thing we keep referencing, there is a threat, and it's growing. You're hearing now Eurozone crisis part yeah. two. We're, we're seeing all of all of this. We're talking, the, the US is openly talking about recession. And we, you mentioned earlier, the UK has been effectively, effectively in recession yeah. now for a number of months. They just yeah. don't, they don't want to mention how bad Brexit has impacted them. We have to, all of that, which is in runs counter cyclical to how Ireland continues to defy logic um, while our economy continues to boom, as you said, that aspect of it is booming. But, I, but should we not be putting that in, a, in, 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 the, in, the, in the growing context of that? Is there not an, a, a, a chance now to say, actually, we think, and I hear, I hear I'm, I'm asked you to do something I, I know you don't want to do, get into the game of predictions, but should we not be thinking, actually, uh, in the in the medium term, this the EU is going to start turning on the printing presses again. The, you know, this is where this is going back to a return to. Um, you know, we've seen calls now. I've seen people write about dual interest rates. Yeah. You know, um, and how to how they can keep the bond market uh, effective like that because 
you know, that that has come home to roost. Surely now we should be starting to think ahead and rather than think because we do have very conservative people uh, in, in, you know, there's still a myth out there that austerity saved the Irish economy. And, yeah. uh, it, uh, you know, and, and, and that persists in, in, yeah. in the top echelons of Irish society where it's total nonsense. Yeah, no, it's completely untrue. It's just, it's just, uh, I, it's, it's just a narrative. And again, back to our open point as well, different stories, different narratives shape policymakers thinking on this stuff. It provides the instruction sheet that they want to pursue. And I, I think that narrative is a bit of a myth. So <laughs> the, the, the reality is that, you know, the export boom generated by multinational foreign direct investment uh, drove the recovery, and that was booming before, during, and after uh, the austerity years. But there's three things there, Tony, um, and it's less about prediction, slightly about prediction, more about understanding. The boom time in Ireland, which going on, there is a risk to that, and the risk is depending on the corporate tax receipts, obviously. And 20% of Irish revenue now comes from the corporate tax sector. About 10 firms dominate that, and that's ultimately about their profit-shifting strategies, and we have no idea where that's going. It could end up being permanent. Who knows? They may actually plan to keep their intangible capital here, their intellectual property, and generate employment and resources around it. So Ireland could actually be a net beneficiary of the OECD BEPS 1 and 2 reforms, uh, and Ireland actually, basically, instead of being a conduit to offer offshoring the, these profits to the Caribbean, Ireland actually becomes the, the source location. So again, we don't know. So unknown, but it, it is risky to depend on those receipts. I just want to, and also just for listeners' benefits, what yeah. we mean there is when you want to actually, you, you'll have to have a, a more, you have to effectively, simply put, you have to employ more people in the area where you book more profits. Exactly. exactly. So, so, so currently, I think the ratio back, back around 2012 was Ireland, you know, had maybe uh, one one staff member, say for if you pick two or three of these multinationals per eight in somewhere like Germany, and yet the level of profit was 300 times more profitable for that one staff member here. Yeah. And we're trying to rebalance that through, the, through yeah. this process, which means we could be a net gain in, in terms of employment. Yes, exactly. Exactly. So again, who knows? Let's see how all that plays out. <clears throat> most, most people now predict that BEPS 1 ain't, ain't never going to happen, you know? So let's see. Um, <clears throat> and BEPS 1 is, sorry, <clears throat> just for your listeners, the base erosion profit shifting uh, policy of the OECD. <clears throat> and the idea is that different countries will be allowed to tax multinationals, not based on physical presence, but on sales. Uh, and therefore, where multinationals book their profits means that, you know, it will depend on an algorithm, let's say, of where are your assets, where's your employment, where's your sales, et cetera. And some sort of agreement can come together there. And many people thought Ireland would be really troubled by that, but actually <clears throat> it may end up being a beneficiary of it. The other thing, Tony, and it is related to the climate, uh, what do governments do to tackle global warming and maintain temperature increases to one and a half degrees? So one and a half ain't going to happen. I think most scientists kind of accept that now. The best case scenario, and I don't want to be pessimistic, is keeping it to about two degrees. Um, and as you know, the effects of that are pretty catastrophic, depending on where you are in the world. Some people estimate up to a billion climate refugees. Um, but it's going to be an Ireland itself. You know, we could go through the detail of what would happen there. And there's lots of people writing about it. But so it has to be done. Right. We have to make this transition. We have to basically completely revolutionize our, our, our entire economy and our energy systems. Dual interest rates, I think, are key here. And it seems to me that monetary policy needs a complete rethink. It's built for the 1950s, 60s, really for the 1970s onwards. And we have this new challenge here, and it's not maintaining price stability at 2%. That's perhaps important. It's not likely to change in the euro area. Uh, Germans would never agree to it. But surely we can begin to have a conversation with treaty change to introduce new targets and objectives. And the new fiscal and monetary objective will be ultimately reaching net zero, let's say. And that might involve having the ECB create a system of dual interest rates, 
ultimately where they make the cost of capital for free for those who are investing in renewables. They make the cost of capital, you know, really widely available for those who are investing in renewable uh, energy, renewable infrastructure, renewable technologies. On top of that, the euro should be allowing governments to run large deficits and count them not as a deficit, but actually as an investment when they are spending money on dealing with issues around tackling climate change. And that could be everything from retrofitting to subsidizing electric cars or whatever it might be, you know, uh, and therefore we need to completely rethink fiscal uh, and monetary policy on that basis. I don't see those conversations at the highest echelons of decision making. I see them taking place in civil society. I see it, see it in academia, uh, but I don't see it at that the places where power is, is, is located. Really. And, and just on that point, which is really fascinating, because one of the reasons we're in this mess is because when we did our, the EU did its type of Joined, joined the Fed and doing quantitative easing and printing. There was no underlying assets. You know, it was simply yeah. saying we're the we're the we're the we will buy we will buy government bonds, lender of last resort. We will underwrite them. Whereas if you were to do this, at least the infrastructure then exists. The the wind farm exists. It's not uh, it's not a number on a, on a screen. It's actually there's something there and it's paying back into a grid. It's paying back into some sort of thing benefit to society and and therefore the economy. So there is underlying assets at the end of it all. So I I, I just you know you're right. I do think we we are stuck in a mentality that says well you know first of all it's it, they they there's fiscal hawks you know and fiscal conservatives that are cause, causing this issue because they simply believe and ireland has has said that they intend to repay some debt that's due to not, not to be paid till 2030 they want to pay it in 2023 yeah, yeah. and you're oh. and you got to scratch your head and say how can you say that out loud and then say we don't have enough money to to invest in some of these projects which i think are more time critical yeah and it's interesting so ireland like is in the eurozone and it seems to me that ireland seems to be more and more influenced by a very conservative german fiscal kind of ordo liberal mindset despite the fact that the pragmatic side of the economy that ultimately creates the increases the living standards is much more us oriented and let's be honest the us is much more pragmatic about fiscal policy i mean you say to the us Congress person uh, that the Germans have basically written into their constitution a fiscal debt break where they actually specify 0.02% or whatever it might be. Or they think you're mad. They think it's hilarious. You know, why would you write that into your constitution? Like, why would you, why would you put those constraints on yourself? You are a government. You're a large sovereign nation state in the global market. You move and shift markets. You have a massive privileged position to do things on behalf of your society. Why would you do that? So Ireland's clearly very influenced by a lot of that thinking in the European People's Party and the Christian Democrat union and this is the thing and i think germany matters here because the present finance minister in germany christian linder who comes from the liberals they're actually more to the right on fiscal policy than for example the predecessors in the in the cdu the christian democratic uh, party would have been you know so that is a real concern going forward for the euro that exactly when we need to have a big picture conversation and I, my view will be treaty change many people say you don't need treaty change but i think you do on what is the role of fiscal policy? What is the objective of fiscal policy in the euro area? And, and you have this German government at the moment, even with the Greens in there, that are just not interested in that conversation. I think that's a real concern. And it feeds into the issue which you mentioned earlier on, ECB and sovereign spreads, etc. The big conversation at the moment is whether the ECB should be targeting sovereign spreads between countries in order to tackle financial fragmentation to ensure ultimately that different countries are fiscally sustainable. And the ECB is going to come up perhaps with a technical fix on how they might do that. And then they're going to confront the legal political thing. And everybody knows, uh, it's, and, everybody and, knows uh, it's just a big game. I know. And then they're going to come on and they're going to face uh, <laughs> the, the, the Bundestag and be told, what the hell do you think you're doing? Um, yeah. we, we know we, we've heard it's... 
we've heard this we've heard this song before unfortunately um but no, look in, in regan i won't delay you any further the, just the very last thing though i i would like to to kind of point that though is in the 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 current cost of living crisis you've been pointing out and we've all been saying this it's not something that just emerged with, with ukraine it's it's been it's been ongoing the one thing that we did see during um, the pandemic was when we did the supports, the pandemic unemployment payment and all, uh, actually was the first time since, because in 2019, believe it or not, income inequality, despite Ireland having the fastest growing economy in the in the EU, income inequality worsened. But during the pandemic, it actually marginally came in. And now we're going back into boom time and it's starting to open again. Uh, that's something that I, I, I put it to you. The narrative has not been successfully put out there that people get that because, you know, we just have to somehow break through that during the pandemic, we managed to lessen inequality. And now it's worse when the economy is the second fastest growing in the OECD. Yeah, I mean, I think and I would imagine that's obviously the first thing is the government stepped in and became the paymaster of last resort and used its balance sheet to effectively subsidize and replace people's incomes uh, and therefore, you know, put a very important floor below which people could not fall. But in market times when things open up again, the ceiling is removed. And I would imagine a lot of what's happening is those in a position to demand higher pay increases, which are typically those in the in the in the in the in the, in the larger private sector, ICT, big pharma sectors of the economy, which are, you know, the most profitable, most productive sectors of the economy, that, you know, when the, when those, and this is the thing with market income inequality in Ireland, that because you have this kind of uh, skewed distribution towards higher incomes in certain sectors, and then the opposite in, in, in lower paid sectors, that you end up with this very unequal uh market-based income inequality. But once the government steps in and, and redistributes, it looks quite different. So I think that interplay between the two uh, is very interesting. And you could see it very clearly during COVID, where most people, I think, supported, and rightly so, and also seeing, I think this is important for narratives as well, people seeing very quickly, actually, the state can do a lot. <laughs> and actually, when central banks and monetary, when monetary authorities and fiscal authorities work a little bit more closer together, they can actually do a lot of stuff. And of course, this terrifies those on the political rights because they know that the state can do a lot when it's working more closely with monetary policy and therefore that's why you need to keep them very very far apart yeah i i think that's that's right there you go folks there are levers that can be pulled they just don't like doing it um ed and regan thanks for taking the time to talk to me this morning and um we'll we'll uh we'll keep wondering we'll keep reading them business post articles i i had your uh your colleague yesterday daniel murray on talking about environmentalism as well i'm going oh, to get in trouble yeah. people are going to think i've become a, a business post sort of uh stan account here at this stage um we, we were back on friday morning folks so more to come and we will talk to you all very very soon take care bye bye tony and martin martin and tony speaking to interesting people only it's the Echo Chamber Podcast. Subscribe now on Patreon.